started, right on the dot at eight, people will trickle in. Um, if you brought your packet from last week, uh, we're not in that packet anymore, but of course hold on to them, um, collect them, and you'll be able to look at it down the line in the future. Of course, if you have any questions, always feel free to bring them up. Uh, you should have a new packet for those joining on Zoom. Um, the link was in the most recent Facebook post, so you could print it out. It's Unit 2 on the Doctrine of God. So if you're especially at home, please make sure you print that out. If you have your Bibles, of course, have them open and ready to go. And we will get started. I want to read a quote for us um, before we get started. In light of the Doctrine of Scripture, which we just finished up, uh, I want to read this very beautiful quote and something that we should ponder and think about. This is a quote by <clears throat> uh, a Reformed Dutch theologian named Herman Bavink, who we'll be reading into a little bit today. And he said this, Someday, when being and consciousness are completely renewed, revelation will end and scripture will no longer be necessary. Divine inspiration will then be the portion of all God's children. They will all be taught by the Lord and serve him in his temple. Prophecy and miracle will then become natural, for God will dwell among his people. And that's a really... A glorious thought to think about um, that there will come a day where we won't need the Bible anymore and it will be when no longer do we need to be taught um, through this word although we're thankful for it but there will come a time when instead of reading this inspired book to gain knowledge and reading it through a veil of our sinfulness there will come a day when we will have divine inspiration directly given to us and we will sit in the temple of the Lord, and Jesus himself will be our teacher. And scripture will cease, revelation will cease as we know it, and instead, our Lord will teach us in his temple. And that's a day where I hope we could look forward to and contemplate and be in awe of what's coming. So with that, let's pray, and let's begin um, asking the Lord for his help as we dive into these things. Oh, Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. Um, it is by your grace that we did not wake up this morning in hell. It is, just, it is by your grace that we were not given what we deserve so rightly. The wrath and the justice of God, the condemnation that our sin brings upon our souls. And we know that even today, in many ways, we have sinned, we have fallen, we have done things we should not have done. We have not done the things that we should have done and we have neglected you, and we have forgotten you. But God, we thank you that you have not forgotten us, and that by remembering your covenant to us, you show us steadfast love, which is why we are breathing, which is why we are living, which is why you have brought us here into your house to learn more, not so that we can just become smarter sinners, not so that our heads can be filled with more knowledge, but that this knowledge will lead us to praise and to adoration and to piety and to true righteous living. Father, we pray that as we dive into um, Scripture more today and as we start to begin to study the doctrine of God, as we start to study and ponder upon the inner workings in the life of God, we pray that you would help us to tread carefully Help us to be fearful as we talk about things that are so lofty and beyond us, and, and yet help us to be submissive to the scriptures. 
and help us to be dependent on your spirit for help. So be with us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we just finished up uh, unit one on the doctrine of scriptures. Uh, very key, like I've been saying. Um, if we don't have the scriptures, um, then we all perish in futility, right? If the scriptures are not something you could aff affirm as a reliable, truthful um, source of, you know, this, this truth about God, which has veracity, which has weight to it, not just because it is true in the sense of academia and it can be, you know, supported by XYZ theory, but because it is the infallible, inerrant, inspired word of God. If we can't affirm that as our starting point, then all the study we do, all the theologizing becomes moot, right? Because we don't have a firm ground to stand upon. But that's why we started with the doctrine of scripture, because everything we're gonna learn in the next six units comes out of scripture, okay? And we're gonna learn a little bit before we go into the doctrine of God, we're gonna talk a little bit about theology. We're gonna learn the different types of theology. And I wanna make that very clear. The reason we start with doctrine of scripture is because everything we're going to learn in the future classes comes from scripture. It's not, maybe explicitly it's not there, but we derive it from scripture and we do it in alignment with what the church has said for centuries. So last week, if you remember, I know I talked about this really briefly, we talked about an error in reading the Bible called Biblicism, right? Which is the error where you read the Bible on your own, apart from what other Christians have said about the Bible for years, for centuries. And when you do that, that's what happens, right? You come to your own terms, your own understanding, but everything we're gonna be learning is derived from the Bible, and it also comes from what the church has agreed and affirmed for years, for centuries, for generations. So, before we get into doctrine of God, if you look at your class, it says doctrine class, unit two, doctrine of God. It says theology proper. That is just a, a term that we use, and it's a sub-study of theology, but the doctrine of God, we'll short name dog, okay, theology proper. This is a subset of theology where we are interested and we will be focusing specifically on the inner life of God. And that's something I want all of us to think about. Does God have uh, inner workings? Does God have an inner life apart from his relationship to you? Maybe that's something you never thought about. Does God only exist in relationship with creation? Or was there a totally different, unfathomable life to God within God himself before he created anything? Have you ever thought about that? Right? And naturally, as humans, not only out of selfishness, but from our standpoint, we only perceive God in relation to us, right? God is our creator. God is our redeemer. God is our savior, all these things. But we're going to kind of dive into not only a deeper question, but a, a question that precedes even how God relates to us. And that question is, how does God relate to himself? And how does he relate with in himself, because we believe God is a community, right? There are three persons, and we're gonna dive into the doctrine of Trinity eventually. But when we're learning theology proper, I know I said the doctrine of scripture is the starting point. This is the starting point. 
Without the doctrine of God, without theology proper, then there would be no scripture. There would be no affirmation of scripture. So we have to start here before anywhere else. And now it's going to be some pretty lofty stuff. We'll have time for questions, of course, but um, I will try to break it down as much as I can. But before we now dive into this, we're going to talk first briefly about theology, okay? So, if you have questions, I know, I know on the Zoom as well, you can ask at the end, but if you're here and if something's like really bothering you, I mean, if you want to like fight me on something, we could do it later, but if you have a genuine question, clarification, you can raise your hand, that's fine. So before we get into the doctrine of God, or before we start theologizing about God, I want to talk to us about theology. Now, this is not on the sheet, but it's important, so if you turn over your last sheet, you have all that space, you could write it down there. So we're going to get into theology. A lot of different terms for theology. It's pretty interchangeable with terms like dogmatics uh, or even doctrine. It's just uh, it's a body of, of truths that you believe. And theology specifically, the word, right, it can be broken down into theos, which is God, and ology, which very simply might, it's just science, right? So this is literally the science of God or the study of God. And Last week, we kind of briefly went over, we have to understand the only way to study God and to understand God, right, is if God reveals himself to us. How do we study uh, biology? How do we do science in general? We use what? The scientific method, right? You can do things that you can find empirical data to find out if this leads to this, if you put this chemical with this chemical, this happens, right? But with God, it's not like that, right? And we're going to learn why. And to put it very simply, it's because God is different from us in every way. He is categorically not the same being as you and I. And therefore, not only that, but we also have sin, which we'll go into as well. But those things separate us from the creator in such a way that you cannot search him, you cannot know him, And even if you tried, you would do it wrong because of your sin. And then that leaves us with the question, then how can we ever know God? He has to reveal himself to us. Theology is actually the study, simply, of God's self-revelation. You can find out revelations about me. You can find out my shoe size. You can find out my food preferences, where I went to school. Those things are accessible to all of us. But with God, the only way to have any knowledge of him is if he, in his own choosing, reveals himself to us. If you remember last week, we talked about that example about being in the dark room and then we're feeling different parts of this thing. We can't identify what it is. And the only way we can know is if that thing speaks to us and tells us what it is. And this is what we do when we study theology. We are studying God, right? We're trying to understand God. We're trying to get to the knowledge of God. And yet, we must understand that it's not by your intellect, it's not by your scholarship, it's not by your effort that you could ever get to know God. It's his act to reveal himself to us. If you guys know Matthew eleven twenty-five 25 to 30, Jesus thanks the Father. He says, Father, I thank you Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things to what? To little children. And he has hidden them from the wise and the learned. 
And what Jesus is telling us in that simple passage is that the truth of God, the only people who can know the truth of God is the ones that God chooses to reveal that truth to. So if you're the Pharisee or the Sadducee and you have all this, this scholarship, you have all this you know, stuff under your belt, impressive things in your resume, it doesn't mean jack. It's only if God chooses to reveal himself to us, which he does to us in Scripture and in his Son. And that's what theology is about. We're trying to understand God, the knowledge of God. And we're going to talk about three different types of theology. So, again, it's not on the sheet. There is a sheet for this, but I didn't print it out for us because it's a little quicker. But we're going to talk about three different types of theology. We're going to talk about exegesis, one, or exegetical theology, biblical theology, and systematic theology. Okay? Exegesis, or exegetical theology, biblical theology, and systematic theology. Okay, I don't know if you guys know this, but QPEM, as a part of KAPCQ, um, we follow and we subscribe to what we call the Reformed tradition. Okay, I would say Reformed tradition is a very narrow tradition of Christianity where our beliefs are in line with what the Reformers taught and what the creeds and the confessions of the church have taught. And as Christians today, here in 2020, what we want to do through especially teachers and seminarians, pastors, and also just as lay people, we want to go into the past and we want to retrieve the great traditions from back then. We want to retrieve the theology that has been um, thought about and affirmed and agreed upon for centuries. And that's what, it, if you guys know in the Apostles' Creed, there's usually something that people say and people get a little tripped up. We say, I believe in the Catholic Church. And the word Catholic, we're not talking about Roman Catholicism, but the word Catholic, very simply, will equate this to creedal and confessional. So when we say we are the Catholic Church or we subscribe to the Catholic tradition of the faith, we are saying that we are not making up our own conceptions about Jesus Christ and the faith. We are actually a part of this great lineage of theology and biblical study that is affirmed for centuries by the church. So everything Pastor Peter teaches, everything we teach here, everything we do as a church, we're not just making this up on the fly. We're not just looking at, hey, let's look at the political, sociological landscape of 2010, 2020, and let's figure out what's the best way to do Christianity? What's the best way to teach this about God, right? I don't know if you guys saw in the news today, but the Pope, he affirmed same-sex union, right? And that's what we have going on. Right? People are not affirming the creeds and the confessions and the truths that have been affirmed by the church for centuries. People are shifting to new ideas, new truths. But what we want to do as faithful Christians, we want to be, now this, if this is clipped out of context, then listen to the whole thing. We want to be Catholic, capital C, the capital C this way. We want to be Catholic. Right? It means that we want to subscribe to the creeds, the councils, the, the Council of Nicaea, the, all these things. We want to subscribe to what the church has agreed upon for years. And in the Reformed tradition, not only do we want to, in these things, we don't only want to retrieve them, like, like find them and study them. We don't only want to receive them, right? We also want to expand them. 
We want to expand. We don't only want to uh, take it, but we want to deepen everything we know. And there's a phrase that can be debated. It's, it's like semper reformanda, which means always reforming. And that could be taken as we are reformed by the things we know, of course. But it also means that even as we are reformed and we hold to these old traditions, we are not in the business of staying static. We don't want to just say, they were right, that's it, let's take it as it is. We want to push it further. We want to say, hey, maybe there's more truth here than even our you know, great predecessors knew. And of course, as we push these things, as we're reforming even the reformed things, we want to, of course, do it all in line with Scripture. Right? So you don't want to just say, in the spirit of reforming, I'm going to read this in a totally different light. No, you want to definitely push and deepen truth, but you need to do it, like we learned last week, according to the standard of Scripture. Sola Scriptura, right? We always need to let that be the thing that norms everything we are studying. And now, along with this, all these things, all the, the Catholic creeds, confessionalism, all of these truths, they have given us theology. Theology that's been built upon for years and years. So I want to explain three different types, and then we're going to get into the doctrine of God, which is uh, systematic theology. So this is super important. This is even just for us as lay people in reading the Bible. Exegetical theology or exegesis, biblical theology, and systematic theology. These are three different ways that we are reading and understanding the Bible. Okay, so let's start with exegesis. You might have heard this word before, exegesis, very, very important. And simply put, exegesis is the most narrow way of reading scripture. The most narrow, the most isolated way of reading scripture. And when you do this thing called exegesis, which you should do when you read the Bible yourself, and your pastor should do when they preach, and every pastor should do when they preach and study, exegesis is basically you're taking a particular text, Okay, you're not looking at the book of Ruth. You're looking at Ruth chapter one, verses one to five. And what you're doing is you're taking a particular text in isolation and you are trying to understand it in its immediate context. Okay, and that means you are understanding it in the original context of the times. Okay, so when you read the book of Ruth, you need to understand that there are Israelite laws that make uh, ways for poor people and for foreigners to be able to have crops and not be hungry all the time. You need to understand these things behind the text. And when we do exegesis, we're trying to understand a text very simply in the original context and language. Okay? And when we do this, we are trying to understand how does this isolated text contribute to our understanding of this book and of this, this immediate surrounding um, story that we're understanding. So exegesis is the smallest unit. It is the atom of understanding the Bible. Okay? And exegesis is also the lifeblood of all theology. Okay? If you don't pull biblical and systematic theology from, through tried and true exegesis, you're just speculating. But exegesis is the opposite of speculation. It is the most scrutinized way you can read the text. You're understanding it in the most isolated way. So exegesis is the starting point. So when you read the Bible, if you just read it as like a narrative, or like this is a cool story, 
or like you read it uh, more like about yourself or you read it through a lens of like the times, then you are not doing exegesis, which means you're understanding the Bible the way you want to understand the Bible. That's what we call eisegesis, right? This is what a lot of like prosperity gospel pastors do. They read a text, right? They read a text and it says like, you know, they'll read something like, you know, ask, ask the father and he will give to you, you know, whatever, he, whatever you please. And then they'll read that and they'll say, ask God for healing and he will instantly heal you no matter what. And they'll read that as it's God's will always for Christians to be healed of cancer. We don't want to do that. That's your reading into the text. When we do exegesis, you're trying to pull what's in the text out, which is why it's X, right? X, we're coming out of the text versus eisegesis where you're inputting your own mindset, framework, agenda, your own biases into the text. And if you do eisegesis, you can make God whoever you want God to be, right? And that's the great irony of, the, of humanity, right? God made us in his image, and ever since the fall, we've been making God in our image. We've been distorting God to the God that we want, the comfortable God, the convenient God, the God who allows for, you know, this, this thing, you know, premarital sex, for drugs, for whatever, whatever it may be. And that's what happens when you eisegete a text. We don't want to eisegete, we want to exegete. That's where we start. And now, moving down, exegesis leads to Biblical theology. One of my professors at school said that biblical theology is the ripest fruit of exegesis. And to put it very simply, when we understand, I'm going to call it BT, okay, biblical theology, we are looking at the Bible with the con- in the context and the lens of history. So we're understanding the Bible along the line of the history of redemption. And we talked about this last week with... Uh, Historical redemptive perspective. We learned about the meta-narrative of scripture, which is simply that all the stories of scripture, all the lines in scripture, they all connect in one singular thread. And that is the story of God's redemptive plan in history. And the, the way we should understand biblical theology very simply is that biblical theology looks at scripture on a line, like this, on a line. And that line has four ticks. First is creation. You should write this down. Next is the fall. Next is redemption. And lastly is consummation. Okay? Biblical theology, when you, when you read into biblical theology or you're understanding the Bible in light of biblical theology, you're looking at scripture on a line. Right? So you think about um, Adam and Eve eating the fruit. Where do you put that? At the fall. You think about us, you know, Revelation 21, the new, new heavens and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. Where do you put that? At consummation. You think about Jesus dying on the cross, redemption, etc., etc. So biblical theology, what it, what it has done over centuries, it, it takes exegesis, individual atoms, individual things of exegesis, and now it's given us this one big, magnificent, meta-narrative picture of Scripture And the lens that it uses is that it looks at scripture along this linear, unfolding progression of God's redemptive plan that starts at creation, goes into the fall, goes to redemption, and will end in consummation. Okay? So that's what we're talking about, 
biblical theology. Gather exegesis, it creates a system. Remember we talked about exegesis is about isolation? Biblical theology is about coordination. It's taking those isolated points, those isolated scrutinized things, and now we're coordinating them into one system, and that system specifically focuses on history. Right? And please understand, biblical theology is a line, but it only goes in one direction. Right? If you, there's a lot of talk, especially just very, like, I guess, not intentional talk, and we talk about going back to the garden. One of the songs I like, the first line is like, take me back to the garden. But if you believe in biblical theology, you don't want to go backwards, right? We start in the garden, go to the fall, we get expelled, and say, I want to go back to the garden. Well, that's not how God works. We're moving forward, right? We end up not in a garden, but in a city. And if you understand the Bible in this, in this sense, you're, the way that you view your life, even now, right? And can I just point out, where are we on this line? We're right here. We are in a period of grace, right? People are being saved by the gospel. People are being redeemed, snatched from the clutches of hell and Satan himself. And we are moving towards this consummation, right? Towards the wedding banquet of the lamb and the bride, the church, right? When all things will be made new. We're moving towards that. So that is biblical theology. Now, lastly, we have systematic theology, which is what we're going to be talking about in length in the next coming weeks. Systematic theology compared to biblical theology, I'm going to write ST. If you guys know Pastor Nate, who's getting married this Saturday, shout out Pastor Nate. He, he's studying systematic theology specifically in his uh, THM. And systematic theology, not looking at the Bible in the lens of history, looks at the Bible topically. And what systematic theology does is it takes everything we know about the Bible, which all comes from exegesis, and it organizes the Bible into what we call uh, locuses, or lo loci, I, I call it loci, whatever it may be. That's probably not the right pronunciation. But it focuses on several um, points, several topics, right? And specifically, we're going to learn about the doctrine of God, doctrine of man, Right, which includes doctrine of sin. We're learning about doctrine of salvation, doctrine of Christ, and doctrine of the church. And systematic theology looks at the Bible more in lines of topics, understanding the different topics of the Bible. So a simple example is that you don't see the word Trinity in the Bible. Right? The Bible never specifically says God is one God with an undividable essence, but with three persons. The Bible never says that. But we believe that as Christians. And that is not biblical theology per se, where it's like literally there and it's on the timeline of history, but that is systematic theology. It's something that we glean from reading the Bible through a different lens. And yet, and here's the point, all of it remains relative. So can I just draw this to simplify for us? This line here is biblical theology. This is a really simple way to understand. This is biblical theology. And this is systematic theology. And what I mean by this is that biblical theology follows, like I said, historically the story of redemption. And systematic theology encapsulates the Bible as well. But notice that no matter where the circle is, it is relative to biblical theology in some way. No matter what, it's going to relate to biblical theology somehow in some way. Does that make sense? 
So we don't want to say that biblical theology is historical, systematic theology is topical, and they're clashing with one another. No, actually, they serve one another. And let me give you an, uh, uh, an example of, about this, okay? So what does the Bible say about man, mankind, right? What does the Bible teach us about humanity? Simply, if we look at it in terms of biblical theology, what does the Bible teach us about mankind? It teaches us, if we look at creation, that God creates mankind. That God creates man in his image. It says it in Genesis 1, 26 to 27. Right? We also learn that at the fall, mankind falls into sin and into a different estate. Etc., etc. And then in, in, even in redemption, we learn that man receives salvation through Christ alone. And then consummation, right? man is glorified and brought home to heaven. So in terms of biblical theology, what does the Bible say about man? It says many things. It says man was created by God in the image of God. It says that man fell. But when we look at the Bible systematically, right, we see it in not in a clashing way, but in a different perspective, and yet they serve each other. So when we look at creation, it says man was created. Systematic theology will go deeper and say, what state was man created in? Was man created perfect? No. God makes man and he said, it's good, very good, never perfect. But man was created sinless, wasn't he? Adam and Eve were sinless human beings. So biblical theology tells us man was created by God. Systematic theology tells us that man was created by God in a state of innocence with no sin. And yet they had the capacity to sin. Does that make sense? Do you guys see the difference? But they serve one another. Next, in the fall, the Bible tells us that Adam and Eve disobeyed and that they were punished by God. But systematic theology, we understand now what does that punishment entail? And we go deep into the state of man, which we say that man is now in a state of sin and misery, right? Every faculty of mankind is fallen. We're going to learn next week about, or two weeks, about total depravity. We're going to learn what that means, right? It means you're not as bad as you can be. If we were as bad as we could be, people would be raping, killing, murder, all these things. They would be doing this all day. It would be like the purge, if you guys know the movie. It would be that, like that would be our normalcy in our life. But that's not what it means. It means that we are depraved totally. We are extensively corrupt and sinful. And then now into redemption, the Bible tells us in biblical theology that Christ has come to save mankind. But what does that mean? What does that mean that we're saved? It means that, our, that we have a new spirit and a new heart. That we're given new desires, right? So on and so forth. And lastly, with consummation, we go home to be with the Lord that's what biblical theology tells us, but systematic theology helps us understand what that means. Like I said in, before we started, that we're going to be with God, right? We're going to be with God. Have you ever thought about the Garden of Eden, that Adam and Eve, they were in paradise? Do you know what the one thing that wasn't there? God. Where was God? He was in heaven. Remember, he comes down to Adam and Eve. They were walking on the earth, and God was in heaven, in his holy throne, his holy temple. But when we go to consummation, it won't be like that. We will be with God face to face in his presence directly, right? So I hope we kind of understand biblical theology gives us vital information and systematic theology doesn't make it more clear or make it more beautiful. It just gives us a different side 
and they serve one another, and it gives us the most clear picture of the Bible. Does that make sense? Any questions? I know there's a lot. But as Christians, we want to know biblical theology, and we want to know systematic theology, because all of it has to do with God. The point of theology is worship, right? That's the point. So we want to know both, but most importantly, where does it come from? From exegesis. So if you don't know how to read the Bible exegetically, or you don't have this intention of, I want to look at the Bible for what it originally says, the original audience, the original intent, if you don't read the Bible that way, then you're not going to ever get this, because you're going to read the Bible the way you want to read the Bible. Does that make sense? Are we all tracking? Okay. Any other questions? We're going to finish up with this, but then, any questions? Uh, a really good quote is, is um, Gerhardus Voss. He says, the Bible is not a dogmatic handbook. It's not a theology handbook, but it is a historical book full of dramatic interest. Right? It is a historical book that unfolds a drama of redemption. And yet, from that, we can glean all these wonderful truths about God, about his triunity, about his inner life, about his, whatever it may be, his aseity, all these different, his impassibility, which we're going to get into. So, with all this set, and then our doctrine of scripture from last week, now we're going to go into systematic theology. The next, however many weeks, 12 weeks, we're going to learn Six very important tenets, the most foundational tenets of systematic theology, which is the doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, the doctrine of Christ, the doctrine of salvation, and the doctrine of the church. And we're going to learn these things. Again, this class is not going to teach you everything you know. Not even close. And I don't know anything close to everything about it. But <clears throat> my hope is that this kind of just piques your interest. Maybe it helps you think about God in a way you didn't before. And hopefully, I hope this challenges us to think. So, with that, we're going to move to point one. So, if you look at the vocabulary, there's two things. And we're going to get into it. Again, if you have any questions, feel free to speak up. Even on the Zoom, if anyone wants to cut me off, feel free. But let's dive in. If you look at point one, we're going to start with the knowledge of God. And this is the quote we need to begin with. If you look at that quote, Herman Boving, I'm going to write it because it's so important. Mystery. Okay? Mystery is the lifeblood. The lifeblood of dogmatics, or we'll just call it doctrine or theology. Mystery is the lifeblood of dogmatics. Now, what does that mean? Mystery, I would say, is one of the most important things we need to understand about not just God, not just Scripture, but just about Christianity in general. Right? What do we mean by mystery? When I say mystery, what do you think of? We're all kind of same age range, so you're probably thinking about Scooby-Doo. Yeah? Yeah, I knew it. Scooby-Doo, right? Mystery. Solving mysteries. If you're a little older... Nate the Great? Y'all know Nate the Great? Yeah, okay. Well, anyways, they all solve mysteries. what they do, right? Mystery is like something that you don't know. Something that is not known and cannot be known until it comes to be solved. But remember we said, with God, you don't solve God. 
God is not a mystery that the gang comes and solves. But when we talk about the word mystery, we're talking actually about a biblical word, and it's this word mysterion. Mysterion. That's how it professes. Mysterion. It sounds more mysterious. Right? Mysterion. The mysterion. It's in the Bible. And this mystery actually leads us to God himself. But not in a way that you think mystery would lead you somewhere. It's not this unknown, unknowable, unapproachable thing. But rather, it is a secret that has been revealed, and yet there are things about it we cannot comprehend. Now, something I want to point out, and we're going to get into this as we go into this first point. But with Reformed theology, and I hear this all the time, I used to hear it and I still hear it today. When we get into things like Reformed theology or like Calvinism, if, you've, if you know like the five points, what people always say is, aren't you putting God in a box? Right? When we say things like God, uh, like he only gives salvation to the elect. Or God predestines people for heaven and for hell. Right? And even though that stuff is clearly in the Bible, but people would say, aren't you putting God in a box? Right? One of my favorite questions that my younger brother, seven years younger, that he always asked me that when I was in seminary, I guess he thought seminary is where you like find the answers to like ridiculous questions. And he always used to ask me, can God make a stone that he can't throw? And I'll be like, what? He's like, can you ask your professors? I was like, no. <laughs> What the heck? I, you know, at Westman, everyone wear, a lot of people at Westman wear like three-piece suits. I used to show up in like my sweats and like a man bun back in the day. I was like, I'm not getting thought more lowly of that I probably already am. But he was like, can you ask them that question? Can God make a stone that he can't throw? Right? And these are the, that's the kind of mystery people think about with God. But a lot of this leads to this idea of if you say that God does this or God will always act this way. Or God doesn't speak to people in dreams anymore. Or people can't speak in uh, tongues anymore. If we say these things, people will be quick to say, aren't you putting God in a box? But when we immerse ourselves in the Bible, not even in like reformed tradition, reformed theology, or even Catholic creedal tradition, when you immerse yourself in the Bible, and you get to know the biblical framework and the worldview, when that takes root in your heart and your mind, you will actually see, I don't want to say this lightly, God puts himself in a box. And he sets boundaries for who he is. Right? And But when you get into those boundaries that God sets, when you see the boundaries that God puts, when God says, this is who I am, that there is no change in me, and when you actually read the Bible for what it is, you will see that there is no box. Only when you subscribe to what the Bible says, you will begin to see the infinite majesty of God. Right? And it's actually the opposite. When you reject the Bible and you read the Bible, you're saying, this is 2020, God. This is so outdated. And when you read the Bible in your own lens, with your own critiques, and you say the Bible's too old, too outdated, too literal, you're putting God in a box. Right? That's what we're doing. A box of our own contriving and derivation, our own logic, our own convenience. But when we study theology and we let the Bible instruct us, we let the Bible guide our teaching, then we will actually see that God is unfathomable. He is uncontainable. And that's what happens when we get into the mystery, right? The things like the Trinity, right? 
How can God be one God, but three persons? How can God be, have perfect unity, and the Father is in heaven, and yet the Son is on the earth? Right? How can the eternal second person of the Godhead be contained in a human body on the earth? He can't. But as we get into these things, that human comprehension comes to an end at some point. And then people would say, oh, so you don't have an answer. Or, oh, science can't answer you. Or, oh, you're contradicting yourself. No, we say, we're getting into the mystery. With God, understanding who we are, there are some things that are the mysterion. There are things that we cannot comprehend in our human mindset, our human thinking, and yet we acknowledge them because they come from God, they're given in the scriptures, and God gives us his word infallibly, inerrantly inspired. You know, Charm actually asked two weeks ago in one of the questions, she said, what's the difference between supernaturalism and mysticism? And actually, we're gonna, I want to answer that question with this word, mystery. When we say that there are mysteries in the Bible, things that we can understand and acknowledge, but we can't fully comprehend, that's the opposite of mysticism. Because if you know anything about mysticism, mysticism, right, is all based on what? experience. It's based on what you feel, what you've experienced. I've been to some services where, you know, I got like knocked over and stuff. And those are things that I experience. And then someone else goes to a service and they get like knocked over and they feel something totally different from me. For me, I'm just like, I got knocked over. And for them, they're like, I was in heaven with the angels. I'm like, what the heck? Like, why is it so different for us, right? And it can get to that point where it's like everything is subjective to our experience. But mystery is the complete opposite. Because mystery is concerned with knowledge. Right? When we talk about the mystery of God, we're not just speculating. We're not just saying like, you know what? Like, people say three is a a good number. So there must be three. Three gods. Oh, no, wait, that doesn't sound right. That's tritheism. No, there's three persons, but there's one God. Does that sound right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's our doctrine of God. That's not where it came from, right? And it wasn't like someone experienced, they go to a retreat and they're like, God came to me as a father. He was so loving as a father. And then the next person says like, oh, no, 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 I felt the spirit. God is a spirit. And some other person's like, oh, I'm a son and God felt like a son to me. They're like, yeah, let's put them together. No, that's based on experience. The mystery that we push into and we want to know, it has to do with knowledge, right? In in the book of John, what does the apostle say? What is eternal life? It is knowing God. And yet, because we are creatures and God is God, there are things where we might have knowledge and it is accurate, but it is so far from complete. It is not comprehensive. And yet, it is true. And that is where, as creatures, we stand back and we say, God... I am not God. You are God. I am a creature. And I will acknowledge and affirm the things you say about yourself in your self-revelation. And although you can't comprehend them, it doesn't mean they're not true. And ultimately, the goal of mysticism, of experience, is what? It's just that. It's experience. It stops there. The goal of pushing into the mystery, as one of my professors said, is worship. 
right? There are times when you study God. Even today, as I was studying these things, the doctrine of God, there were some times where I literally had to stop. I'm saying like, this is so crazy. I can't even fathom these things about God. And then I realize how small I am, how insignificant I am. I realize my finitude, that I'm a finite being, and yet a God who is infinite would set his affections on me, and I don't have to fight for his attention. When, I, when we push into the mystery, even though we feel small, we say, I don't understand, I don't comprehend, it leads us ultimately to be in awe. Like Pastor Peter said on Sunday, to have fear. To have the fear of the Lord in our hearts. To simply say, I am not God. Hey, praise God, right, that we're not God. And he is God alone. And this mystery is what we're going to be pushing into. One of my professors, he said this. When we, when we attempt to contain God in a box, right, you don't want to do that. But when we dive into these things that are mysterious, these things that are given to us in Scripture, yet we cannot fully comprehend them, it, you're not going to put God in a box. But what's going to happen is that you are going to always, happily, and majestically, you're going to bump against the mystery of God. When you try to dive into who God is, you're not going to just categorize him into a box. No, you're going to bump into these things where you're going to be like, this doesn't make sense. How can God be three persons but one God? And when you dive into scripture, you're going to bump into these things and it will put you in submission, joyful submission to who God truly is. So if you look at that quote, we're going to go into this first quote. In the first section, the knowledge of God this is, I, to be honest, I don't even know who said this quote, but it is very important. It says, the knowledge of God begins with the incomprehensibility of God, right? Some of you guys, I don't really know what everyone studies, right? Whatever you guys like, science, math, bio, whatever, all these things, right? Shuffleboard, games, we all might like something different, right? And everything can be exhausted to some point, Right? I, I guess with like certain things, there are things where we don't even know everything. Like the ocean, right? The, the ocean, we don't know what's at the bottom, all these things. But we will. We can one day with technology and advancement down the line. But God, God is the one thing where we can never exhaustively know him. And that's what this quote means. And this is the quote we have to start with before we study God. The knowledge of God. Knowing God begins with this first admission and submission that we can never know God fully. Incomprehensible. God is incomprehensible, meaning we cannot know him exhaustively. Okay? If you read what it says, it says, when it comes to theology, knowing God, we must start with this. When we affirm that God is incomprehensible, we are not saying that God cannot be known or understood at all. No. Rather, we are saying that God cannot be known or understood exhaustively or completely, which simply means our knowledge of God is true. It is true, but it is not complete. And can I tell you something? Your knowledge of God will never be complete. Right now, you, we probably know uh, 0.0000001% of the goodness and the glory of God. And you might say, oh, that, it's, that's because we're on this side of heaven. And we see things dimly through a glass and we have sin in our lives. Well, let me give you a, a little good news. When you get to heaven, when there's no sin and the Lord himself is teaching us and we're discovering day by day about the goodness and the glory of God with no impediment, 
for the rest of eternity, you will be understanding more and more about the knowledge of God. Even in eternity, your learning about God will never end. I know, it's lofty. Try to fathom that, right? On this earth, everything can come to an end. Everything, the study, your life, everything. But when you get to heaven, and even now, God is the one thing, He is incomprehensible, and that means for the rest of eternity, you will spend every waking moment discovering more and more about the goodness and the loveliness and the majesty and the glory of God, right? Don't raise your hand, but how many of us have picked up something new and you give up within like a week? All of us. New Year's resolution, right? Things get boring quick. We get tired of things really easily. But God is the one thing for the believer who is saved. He keeps getting better. And even in heaven, he'll get infinitely better. Imagine the next day you wake up saying, man, God's going to get infinitely better tomorrow. And you go to sleep, and then it was amazing. And then you go back to sleep that night, and say, God's going to be infinitely better tomorrow. And it just keeps going and going and going. And we need to understand that our knowledge of God will never be complete on this side of heaven or on this side of glory. But yet it can be true. Why? Because God has revealed himself truly in the scriptures. St. Augustine said this quote, we are speaking of God. Is it any wonder you do not comprehend fully? For if you comprehend fully, it is not God you comprehend. Do you want to really give all of your life to serve and know this, this God? who maybe after 2,000 years of serving, you're going to get tired of him? No. That's not what we're made for. We're made for eternity in our hearts. And God is the only one who can match that. And if you look at that 1 Kings 8, 12 verse, it says, Then Solomon said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. That doesn't mean God is evil. But what it means is that there is something about God that in God's very nature and being, there is a mystery, a cloud of things we cannot comprehend that surround him. And that's what we mean when we say God dwells in thick darkness. We're saying there's a parts of God that are unknowable. They're incomprehensible. And yet God is searchable. Yet God is accessible through the scriptures, through his son, and through the spirit. Right? So we need to affirm that. People will say, oh, why do you believe in this God? You don't even know him. You're not even sure if he's there. You can never be sure. But we believe, no, we can know God truly. We can know him accurately. We just can never know him exhaustively. Right? So we need to start there, the baseline. Now, going into this, there are two main ways that God reveals himself to us. Actually, uh, Pastor Peter was talking about this a little bit general. Um, he was talking about um, common grace, saving grace. And these, this is related. So we're going we're gonna to get into common grace, saving grace in Unit 5. But we're going to talk about how do we know God then? How do we come to know God in a true sense? And it mainly happens through two means. Through general and special revelation. Okay, general and special revelation. If you look, it says revealed and concealed. There are many dimensions, aspects of God's character and being that we cannot comprehend. It doesn't matter if you do like 80 PhDs on the triunity of God. Every one of those PhDs, as long as they're genuinely Christian, they would say that I can study God for the rest of my life 
on this side of eternity, and I will never understand how God can be one essence and three persons, three distinct persons. That's just something where we take it from the Bible, we glean it exegetically, systematically, and we say, this is who God says He is. Do we have categories? Do you know anyone who is one being but three persons? Right? I'm thinking about like, I, like I, I, this is maybe not a PC, but like people with like schizophrenia, right? They say that they have like multiple people inside them. I've heard that before. I've seen it in like YouTube videos. Is that the same thing? No. Is that the closest you can get? Probably not. But those are the only categories we have. And those are things that we can't really like validate or verify. And yet God is telling us clearly in his word that there is one God. Right? We hear that in the Shema in Exodus 20. The Elohim Echad. There is one God. And yet he reveals himself in three persons. Right? If you know the story of creation, we see God of creation. The Father is speaking. Who is creating? The Son. Right? Colossians 1 tells us that the Son, all things are made through the Son. And Genesis 1-2 tells us that the Spirit is there hovering over the waters. And there are three distinct persons existing at the same time, and yet they're only one God. And this is the mystery we're going to dive into. And, and if you look at that, what it says, there are many dimensions, aspects we cannot comprehend. But the Christian faith is not a blind faith, nor is it an ignorant faith. Why? Because God has truly revealed himself. If you guys know the story of um, Exodus, right? If you got, or if you watch Prince of Egypt, you guys know about the pillar of fire, right? The cloud. And I want you to think about this. The pillar of fire was what? It was the presence of God. It was a theophany. It was a physical manifestation of the presence of God. And what did it do? It revealed God. People said, where's God? And the Israelites say, right there. Flaming pillar. But at the same time, what does it do? It conceals God. You can't get too near. You'll die. Think about the, the smoke that covered the tabernacle. Right? The pillar of smoke that consumes the tabernacle and the temple. What does it do? It reveals God. People say the presence of God is here. It has fallen on the tabernacle. But that cloud, you can't go in. It simultaneously conceals God. And this is what we need to understand. This is how revelation works. It reveals and it conceals. But it does reveal truly. It does reveal truly. And there's two ways that we have revelation given to us as human beings. General and special revelation. Read with me Romans 1, 19 to 20. For what can be known about God, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, for what can be known about God is plain to them, to them meaning all humans, because God has shown it to them. How? For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. If you look what it says, general revelation means that God has revealed himself generally to all people through nature and created things. Okay, That can even go a little bit into common grace. right? When the farmer farms, God puts rain on the wicked farmer and the righteous farmer. Right? But that's common grace. When we go into this idea of general revelation, we're saying that God has revealed himself to all people via creation. Okay? Through creation. Right? Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And we need to affirm this, 
Because if you look at the end of Romans 1.20, it says what? So they are without excuse. General revelation means that God has revealed himself in a clear way to every single human being, to every single image bearer, through creation. Okay? Through creation. Does that mean you can look at the clouds and say that Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God, came to die for my sins? No. No. Unless it's spelled out on the clouds. No. But what it means is that in nature, in creation, God has revealed himself extensively enough so that everyone knows that he's real. Right? Atheism takes faith. Atheism is a type of faith. Right? You're believing in something you can't affirm or see. But general revelation, what it does is we affirm in through Romans 1, that God has revealed his existence, his divine attributes, his person, who he is, that he is the creator, he is the maker of all things. God has revealed himself in creation so that no one has an excuse. That means no one gets to stand before God and say, I didn't know you were real. What general revelation does is it leaves everyone with no excuse. So your mom, your dad, your brother, sister, family member, friends who don't believe in God or who are atheists and they say things like, oh, I, I won't believe till I see it. I won't believe till I experience it. Guess what? If they were to, God forbid, the day that they perish, they cannot go to God and say, oh, God, now I see that you're real. I didn't know this whole time. No. Romans 1 and general revelation tells us that all human beings know that God is there then why don't people believe? Because Roman 1 tells us that people suppress the glory of God. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for creeping, crawling idols, for things that are not God, right? So it's not that people don't know God is there, right? But it's that they suppress the knowledge of God. They suppress the truth that is in them, that is given to them as by virtue of being human beings. And then, general revelation, we need to understand, it is enough to leave us without excuse. But what can't general revelation do? It cannot save us. General revelation, the knowledge of God, the existence of God, that God is our creator in creation, knowing that alone is not enough to save you. For that, God has given us special revelation. If you look, it says God has revealed himself not generally, but exclusively to his people through the elect chosen people, through divine speech and his written word, through and in his son, Jesus Christ. Everyone has general revelation. And general revelation is clear. The term we use is perspicuity. It is clear in nature that God is real and that he is the creator. And it is embedded and engraved in our hearts because we're made in God's image. And that is enough to leave you before God with no excuse. None at all. But it cannot save you. The only way you could be saved is if you are brought to faith through the word of God to Jesus Christ. Right? Romans 10.10, faith comes through hearing, hearing the word of God. And special revelation is the Bible. That is special revelation. Right? It's God revealing himself and the plan of salvation exclusively to his people through the prophets and through the apostles and pointing to Jesus Christ. 
But you might say, oh, does that mean anyone who has a Bible is saved? No, of course not. Because like I said, remember, you can have a Bible. You can study the Bible. You can get a PhD in theology. But if God doesn't choose to reveal himself to you, there's no hope. Remember John Piper famously said, why do PhDs study God? Why do, they, why do they study? Why do they get PhDs in theology and study God their whole lives and then yet they cheat on their spouse? Do you know why? Because they don't know God. Because the only way you know God is if He reveals Himself graciously to you. And He does that truly. God truly reveals Himself in general revelation enough so that you are without excuse and yet He only saves through special revelation through the Bible itself. The special revelation which gives us the gospel, which leads us to the person and to the work of Jesus Christ. And we may all have Bibles. You may not even read them. But if you are chosen, if you are elect, and we read the scripture and we have faith that comes as a gift, we are saved. And th these are the two types of revelation that we have. Does anyone have questions? You can feel free to ask. We're going to stop in like five minutes and we're going to talk about something really briefly and then we're going to do questions and then we're going we're to get out. But anyone have really quick questions? I'm going to explain one more thing before we get into some more stuff. We might have to split unit two into three weeks because communicable attributes, incommunicable attributes is a whole other thing. But this is dope. This is fun. Any questions? Okay. So that's the end of the knowledge of God. I want to make a point about the knowledge of God. Okay, John Calvin says that the knowledge of God is needed to have true knowledge of self. Okay, I remember this sometimes, you know, when you're on the way to church and you wake up super late. I remember sometimes where winter, it's still dark out, and then I get dressed in the dark, and then I go to church, and then my suit pants are blue, and then my suit jacket's black, right? You can do things, but if you don't have light, if you can't see things clearly, then you don't really know yourself. You don't know what you look like. And John Calvin makes a very important point about the knowledge of God. He says that true knowledge, true wisdom is twofold. Okay? Twofold knowledge gives us true wisdom. And it is the knowledge of God and the knowledge of self. You cannot have knowledge of self without knowledge of God. So you might have friends that are not believers. And they really think they know themselves. They done the Myers-Briggs. They did the Enneagram. And they think they really know themselves. That's the vibe. That's, the, that's the, the mood of our culture, right? All these like personality tests. You know, fill out these like 110 questions that you probably vary on day to day. And you will really know yourself. And Calvin and the Bible says, you can't know yourself at all if you don't know God. First of all, you don't know you're a sinner, right? You don't know who you are. You don't know about your essence, which is tainted and corrupted by sin. And this is something we need to understand. That's why we start with the doctrine of God before we get to the doctrine of man. Because they're connected. They're inseparable. Right? And we need to understand, anytime you think about yourself, you contemplate yourself, it will inevitably, inevitably lead you to contemplate God. Right? Even your insufficiencies. Right? Think about this. Even the fact that you have to go to sleep Right? You can't stay awake. The fact you have to slumber points you to God. 
the God of Israel who does not sleep nor slumber, right? Everything even about yourself will point you to the knowledge of God. And <clears throat> because God is the ultimate standard against we have, which we have to judge ourselves, you can't know yourself. You might say, I'm a pretty good person, right? Compared to who? Compared to me? For, that's easy then. That's easy. I'm a depraved, wretched person. But the people who think they know themselves, I'm a pretty good person, I do X, Y, and Z, I give to this, this, and this. But if you compare yourself to God, to the standard of God's holiness, you are not a good person. You are doomed without hope in life and death, right? So it's really important to understand the knowledge of God comes first. The knowledge of God informs the knowledge of self. And at the same time, when we get into the knowledge of ourselves, it'll lead us to the knowledge of God. Does that make sense? So we want to affirm that as well. The last thing I want to talk about, if you look at the next point, it talks about the attributes of God. And before we end, I want to just give us a little preview. And we're going to end with this. We'll take questions and then we'll head out. Before we get into anything, next week we're going to get into the attributes of God. We're going to talk about God's eternity, His aseity, His impassibility, His omniscience, all these things. You know? And people always have those questions. If God is omniscient, then how come Jesus doesn't know when, you know, it's the Father's time for, you know, salvation to come and consummation? Well, we have all these questions. We're going to get into, not those specific things, but we're going to get into the attributes of God. But before we get into that, before we get into the Trinity especially, which we're going to tread very carefully, we need to affirm something very simple and very basic. We'll try to finish this in four minutes. We need to affirm that God and us, that myself and God, we are totally different. Now, I can say I'm totally different from Hayan or totally different from Rumi. That's not what I mean. Let's use another word. You are wholly other. God is wholly other. Holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y. Holy, he's also holy. But wholly other. God is wholly other from you and I. And what I mean by that is that God in his being is completely different to you and me. Now, what does that mean? It means simply, and we're going to learn about this. This is something that Cornelius Van Til, one of like the, the top dudes at Westman back in the day, he came up with this thing, this concept called the creator-creature distinction. And this is where we're going to end. And we're going to... This is the foundational for everything we just learned, and it's foundational for what we're going to learn in the next five units. This is a, a very important picture. You can get coasters at Westman that literally have this. It's incredible. It's like the most like nerdy, reformed thing I've ever seen. This is what we call the creator-creature distinction or the creator-creature relation. And what we're simply saying is that God is up here. God is here, and everything else creation, everything in creation, everything, including us, we are down here. And this distance between us, the God's creation, and God the creator, the distance between us is not simply a distance of God is more holy than you, God has more morality than you, God is more faithful than you. The difference between God and his creation is something we call an ontological difference. And the word ontology simply means being. 
It's a big word, but I, I'm teaching it because I want it to sound really impressive and big. Because the difference between you and God is not that he gets up for work to create stuff and you didn't get up for work this morning. Or that God never cusses, but you do in secret in your group chats. No, the difference between you and God is literally our being. God is wholly other from humanity. <clears throat> he is wholly other. He is completely distinct in his very being and his essence from all of humanity and from all his creation. And we need to affirm this because if this is true, right? If we're down here and God is up here, first of all, that should humble you, right? That should help us to realize that when you start thinking, you know what's better. God, I think you should have ended COVID three months ago. That would have been the right move, right? Well, God, why did you save the world by butchering your son on the cross? That doesn't seem like a good move. And we might have these thoughts. And God says to us in Isaiah that your ways are not my ways, that your thoughts are not my thoughts. And God says in Isaiah 57 that he is high and lofty. He's up here. He is categorically, essentially different in his being. And we are down here with the rest of creation. And there's a distance between us that cannot be um, crossed. And even worse, there's also sin, which adds a completely different layer of gap. And if this is true, how can God relate to us? How can a God who is different in his very being relate to creation? God is not confined by space and time. How can a God who is eternal and not confined by space and time relate to creatures like you and I who are confined by space and time? How is that possible? How? And all the more if there is now this added layer of sin that widens the gap, when the gap was already wide belief beyond our imagination, how is it possible that we can have a true relationship with this creator? How? And that's what we're going to get into. That's not much of a cliffhanger, because you might already know the answer. Jesus is always the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. But <clears throat> we're going to get into this, and next week we're going to talk about God's attributes. We're going to see what makes God wholly other. What is it about him that puts him in a different category? In his being, in his essence, and then... The last week, or the next week after that, we're going to learn about the Trinity, the triune God, right? The three persons, one essence, indivisible essence. We're going to learn about these things. And we're, we're going to really understand. But I want to, can I end with this encouragement? Simply, if this is true, if this is true, then that means by virtue of us being creation, the only thing that you should expect is what? is you owe obedience to your creator, right? I'm sure for Pastor Peter, you know, sometimes like kids, they do something they're supposed to do, and then they're like, where's my reward? It's like, what? <laughs> like, Dad, I got ready for bed. Can I have like $5? Like, oh, I don't know any kids who do that. It's pretty crazy. But can I have like uh, more time to play games? I got ready for bed. It's like, what? You're supposed to. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. And if we are truly in this category as creation, as creatures, then the only thing that you should expect in your life is that you owe obedience unto your maker. You have no pathway and no prospect of getting into true communion with your maker. And yet God makes a way. God makes a way for humanity 
to have true, living, dynamic, vibrant relationship with him, with the creator. You hear that all the time, there's a God-shaped hole in your heart. And God solves that problem. We made the mess. And God is infinitely more able to clean it up at his own expense, at his own cost. For God to be outside of the confines of time and space and yet to enter into time and space in the person of Jesus Christ to bring you back to the Father, right? The one who creates water thirsts. It's the mystery, right? The very very God who makes the wood and the trees and the iron that he, that the Son of God is nailed upon those very things which he created. How? It's a mystery. And yet, if left to ourselves, this is where we stay. And this is where we belong. And yet, because of God's redemptive plan and his, his grace towards us and his love, which moves towards us first. There's nothing lovely about us in this circle. We're just creation. And yet in His grace, He moves towards us in Christ, in salvation, so that we can have what the Westminster Confession of Faith calls this blessedness, this blessed reward of His presence and His love through union with Christ. So we're going to get into this more. I wanted to teach this because this is where we start. As we go on the weeks and we theologize, as we think about things, remember where we're at. We're not in this bubble. We don't think like God. We think down here, and that's why we rely on the scriptures and the spirit of God and the son of God to understand who God truly is. Any questions before we close from the folks here in person? Any questions? Well, relevant questions. Okay. Usually I take it as I taught well or very disinterested. I won't say which one I think it is. Yes, do you have anything? Charm. Charm. Welcome back, Charm. What's up? A long message, Noah. A long message. All right. You mentioned earlier that we can never know God exhaustively, so we learn something every day. What does the pursuit of learning about Him until we die look like? I used to study theology because it was what really grew my faith, and used to take part in church activities a lot. Now I'm stuck in that. Maybe I need to be more community service focus phase. Hmm. Everything seems exhausting and unsustainable. Mm. I'm tired, not of God, but of faith, mm. uh, but of being faith culture focused. Mm-hmm. It does make sense. Uh, Charm, just to repeat the question again for people on Zoom, people here, uh, Charm just basically said, what does the pursuit of God, what does the pursuit of the knowledge of God, which is inexhaustible and yet true, what does that look like practically in our lives? Right? And is that something you do or... Once you get to this place where you know enough about God, should you focus on charity and doing things that are good? Um, ultimately, like I said, like I was saying to answer that question, Charm, and for everyone else who's thinking, this is kind of is answered by that first thing I mentioned in week one about true piety, right? That faith-filled life, or to put it more simply, a life that, uh, a faith that works itself out in your life, right? James 2 says that faith without works is dead. True faith the true believer that is saved and and is in union with Christ, your desires change, right? You don't want to live the way you used to. You might still live the way you used to, but you hate it and there's tension in your heart, right? And that life that is worked out by your faith, 
right? Like Paul says to work out your faith in fear and trembling. As you do so, like we said in the first week, all of that comes not by just trying harder to produce more faith-filled works, right? But by what? By returning to the knowledge of God. More specifically, like Calvin said, the knowledge of his benefits, right? And like we were saying before, um, we were saying the mystery, when we dive into these things of God, the knowledge of God, which is inexhaustible, and yet it is true. Don't just clip me here saying that we can't know God fully. That might sound like a really pointless pursuit then, but we can know God truly, right? And the fact that we can know him truly and never exhaustively is actually an amazing motivation to get to know him. He's the one thing in your heart that you will never be content with to some degree. Of course, you'll be content, but you'll always know more. You'll always have the ability to know more, especially in heaven. But ultimately, Charm, like we were saying, that life that, is, that produces praise, that produces good works, and that piety, and that charity, that religion that God is pleased with, it comes when you dive into the mystery. So it's the knowledge of God that we have, right? The knowledge of His, his goodness, the knowledge of His love towards us, the knowledge even of things like this, which seems so lofty. And yet, when we understand where this fits into salvation, where Christ comes to us incarnate, condescending to us, to love us, to save us. When we understand those things, that will produce praise. That will produce the true religion that God is pleased with and that God is after. So should you focus more on like a charity-based faith or like works-based faith? The formula is ultimately we focus on the knowledge of God and that will produce in us awe and reverence and work, faith-filled work like we've been talking about on Sundays. Like Pastor Peter is saying, you have to start in the gospel story. It has to start with the knowledge of God, the goodness of God, the benefits of Christ, and that will ultimately produce that work in us. Of course, it takes effort, but you have to start at that place, if that makes sense. I hope that's helpful, Charm. Thank you for asking so many questions. I appreciate it. Anyone else? Questions? Are we good? We're good. Okay. If you have any questions, like I said before, email me or whatever, you could ask me after, or ask me on Sunday, whatever it is. Um, thank you, I know it's getting a little bit longer. I'll, I try to keep it short, there's a lot. And you know, I'm, gl- I'm glad, I, th- there was no way I could have taught this in three weeks, or in two weeks. So next week we'll go into attributes of God, and then we'll talk about the, trinity, the triunity of God. It's gonna be tough, and we're gonna be careful, but it's gonna be good. And at the end of the day, like we've been saying, we all, you, some of you, y'all been in church for so long, you say you worship God, And now the question I have is, who is your God? Is it the God in the scriptures? The God of Abraham, Jacob, Isaac? Is it it the God who reveals himself truly in the scriptures? Because if it is, we can't help but love him. We can't help but be amazed by him. All right, let's pray, and then we'll close out. Let's pray. Um, God, we thank you so much for this time, once again, to um, really ponder upon things that are so lofty, I'm so much bigger than we are in our finitude because, Lord, these are things that are about you. And, God, you are lofty. You are great. You are majestic. You are powerful. And yet, God, in the gospel, in the scriptures, you reveal that all, with all of this power, with all of this might and this majesty, you use it to save wretched sinners like us. Lord, oftentimes, you, people who have power, they abuse it. And yet, God, you use your power to save You use your power and your love is for the widows and the orphans and the broken, for sinners like us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, 
that He is the one who is sent as this expression of your love and your commitment to your covenant promises. And we thank you that in Him we can have eternal life today. We pray that as we continue our study in the doctrine of God, we know that these things are difficult to understand. May we receive them by faith. May we not argue and debate with the, with the scriptures, but be able to come to a place where we trust your word because we trust your heart. You've shown us that you keep your promises in sending your son Jesus. And may we receive you and accept you for who you are at the word you give to us. And may we be in awe. May it lead not to just bigger heads, but to praise and adoration and humility and a servitude that is worthy of who you are, God. We thank you. Be with us as we go home and rest for all of us even at home now. Uh, Help us to be faithful in the rest of the weeks until we meet again on Sunday and we are filled and nourished by your word once again. We thank you, Lord. We love you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you all for coming. Please take your packets with you. If you lose them, uh, I will have more for you. Try not to lose them, of course. Thank you, everyone, for coming. See you all Sunday or next week. And yes, please get home safe. See you.